What got you there with got you got you What got you there with Shonda Laney got you there with Shonda Laney What got you there with Shonda Laney got you there with Shonda Laney What got you there with Shonda Laney Today Sean talks with Bill Cole Bill is one of the most prominent prolific and successful performance psychology consultants working in the world today Headquartered in Silicon Valley, he maintains a global consultancy, coaching, and advising top performers. He is the mental game coach to celebrity athletes, top business people in the executive suite, sales professionals, public speakers, media professionals, musicians and actors in Hollywood, and military and police. He has been the mental game coach or consultant to Olympic athletes who have won bronze, silver, and gold medals. On this episode, you will hear Bill take Sean through different performance psychology techniques that you can implement today to be a higher performer. One of the newest sponsors of the podcast and one of my favorite brands right now is Viore Clothing. Viore is the perfect performance apparel for anyone who loves yoga, surfing, hiking, being active, or in the weight room. They combine innovative fabrics with cool finishes that really feel good and are great for the environment. I would head over to vioriclothing.com. That's V-U-O-R-I clothing.com to receive 25% off. Yes, that's 25% off your first order. Use discount code WGYT. And if at any point you're not satisfied with the purchase, send it back. That's 25% off your order with 100% satisfaction guaranteed at vioriclothing.com. If you're like me and love to travel, then listen up. Are you looking to get outside your comfort zone in 2018? Are you tired of the monotony of your nine to five job with no adventure? Do you want to connect with new people on Epic Adventures? If so, then Globekick is what you're looking for. Globekick is redefining travel for the millennial generation. Globekick knows that memorable travel is built on the quality of the experience you have and the people you connect with along the way. That's why their members can choose from curated travel experiences throughout the year with like-minded people. Unlike other travel providers, Globekick members get to know each other through a private social network before choosing when and where they travel together. In 2018, they've teamed up with partners around the world to feature a Sahara Desert camping trip out of Morocco in May, a boating journey through the Sandblast Islands in the Caribbean in August, and a volunteering trip to an elephant sanctuary outside of Cambodia in December. If you want to travel the world with your kind of people and not break the bank, then head to globekick.com and enter WGYT to receive 10% off your membership. That's globekick.com and enter code WGYT to receive 10% off your membership. Maybe a little bit of background, how I I get into it. Two stories, uh, kind of short. One was uh, I was a tennis player. So I was age 15. I was pretty good. This is in Western New York. And it was in the, I think, the biggest county in New York State at the time. So I'm in the finals of some junior tournament. I think it was the Erie County Championships. And I'm playing against a really good guy. I'm warming up. And we're hitting the ball great. And I'm thinking, this is going to be a good match because this guy's good. So we start the match. And I win the first game pretty handily. Win the second game pretty easily. Win the third game, starting to be a struggle. By the time I won the fourth game, Sean, I realized... You know, I haven't lost a point yet. That's like 16 straight points in a pretty good battle. I haven't lost a point. Now, my 15-year-old mind didn't know what the zone was called then. In fact, it wasn't (laughs) even written about back then. Um, I just knew I was having a good day and enjoying it, and I was really motivated, and I kept going. So before you know it, I win the fifth game at Love. And again, before you know it, I win the first set 
without losing a point. So normally when I talk to tennis audiences, I say, uh, how many of you know what that's called? A lot of them might or might not know, but it's called a golden set. Uh, I didn't even know the name back then. I mean, probably 15 years after that, I discovered the name of it. And if you go online and do a little research in the whole history of pro tennis, which I think is where the records are kept more than junior tennis, uh, in the whole history of pro tennis, men and women for how many years that is, uh, only three times has somebody ever achieved a golden set. Get out of here. Only three. Wow. So, again, I didn't know the significance of it. All I knew was, this is special. This is <laughs> I'm enjoying it. Uh, it's working for me. I'm probably going to win the match. Now, I ended up losing the second set, probably because I was uh, a little cavalier about winning the first one so easily. And then I had to struggle and I did win the third set. But that moment really um, stuck with me in a big way. It partially confused me. Like, how come that never happened before? And then I obviously kept playing tennis. How come that even hasn't happened again? You know, it even hasn't come close again, not even in practice. In fact, I even went out a few times and got almost like the worst guy I could play. I didn't tell him that. <laughs> Practicing well, in practice with him, trying to reproduce the zone and the golden set. I could not do it. So all I know is something really extraordinary happened that day that I wanted to know more about. So that was age 15. Actually, I should probably back up. I should have told you this one first, but when I was like 11 or 12, I'm pitching in an all-star Little League baseball game. So I was really into baseball before tennis. Then I discovered uh, when I was done with Little League, when you had to move up to the big diamond, uh, for some reason, my arm just wouldn't work uh, that distance or whatever. Part of it was my dad was a coach and he wasn't coaching anymore. All my buddies were on the team. They weren't there anymore. And I guess I discovered baseball. I, I didn't have the love of baseball I had for tennis. Nonetheless, I'm in the all-star Little League baseball game pitching. And this will be a shorter story. I had a really great day again. Uh, pitched like a no-hitter. We won the game. Again, barely knew what a no-hitter was at age 11 or 12. And I'm thinking, I, I do remember thinking this. Oh, I've got the secret. Oh, I figured it out. Oh, yeah, a brand new level. I'm never going to go lower than this again. Well, within about, uh, I think they gave me two or three days rest in the series, and I went out to pitch again. So Sean and I went from hero to zero in about 72 hours. And I couldn't find the plate. I found the backstop really well, but I couldn't find the plate at all. So again, that was a really um, marked experience for me because you know how could I go from winner to loser so quickly? No, no conception of how it happened either way. Real confusing, embarrassing, the whole thing. Obviously, disappointing. And you know who knows what, what how a eleven year old kid thinks in terms of career. I didn't even know what a sports psychologist was. I didn't know the field existed, but. It really stuck with me. So those two things propelled me uh, through my sports experience, always wondering what is the nature of that and, and is it possible to reproduce it? Then I go to uh, college. I had a, a tennis scholarship to a college in New York State. Um, uh, it was called uh, State University of New York at Fredonia and went there for a year, took a few psychology classes the first time ever, really loved it, came alive. And, but I did, still didn't know what I wanted to do. So I said, I'm going to take a year off. I played some tennis. I worked at a local uh, food market, lived at home. And then I did some research on combining tennis, sports. And I discovered there's this, 
this crazy field called sports psychology. And this is back in uh, 1974, okay? And, uh, gee, you know, that'd be kind of cool. Let's see if the local university has a degree in that. Gee, they don't. Oh, they have a psychology degree. Oh, they have, like, physical education. Oh, they have philosophy. Well, that, what I ended up doing was getting a double major in psychology and um, physical education. I minored in philosophy. But I had a, what's called a special major. So my actual degree title in 1978 was sports psychology. And I was the first person in the world to achieve an undergraduate degree in sports psychology. So all of that, there's like the start of my professional career, was launched from, okay, the baseball pitching and the tennis thing, which I had no idea what they were called and what was going on, but they intrigued me so much I had it no more. So I don't know how much more you want to know, but I kept going in the field, uh, teaching, coaching, writing, presenting, and uh, kind of how I expand, expanded my current practice is uh, at one point I wasn't not doing sales coaching, but I'm doing sports psychology coaching with people in sales who just came to me or they owned a business or whatever. Hey, Bill, this is really interesting stuff. You're telling me in the, the psychology of tennis, can you do this for a salesperson? And that's how it was, was born. So all these additional areas I've gone into from sports psychology uh, were, were basically asked of me, can you do that? Does it apply? Does it roll over? It's the same thing. And the answer now will kind of broaden it is yes, because sports psychology is basically applied performance psychology. So it's the psychology of the human mind in application of how can you do better in the thing you're doing. So it, it's really applied to anything. I've done this in uh, presentation coaching. I have a pretty big practice in interview coaching. They come to me. They have stage fright. Uh, people that do uh, public speeches, they have a lot of stage fright there. So I help them on the stress management. The sports psychology is an obvious one. So it really does apply anywhere when you're dealing with, with reduction of stress and improvement of performance under pressure. So I'm going to take a breath and let you jump in there. No, I mean, I love hearing the backstory. I know the listeners appreciate that as well. And they're certainly going to be interested. Like I mentioned prior to the call, we have a lot of former athletes who now are kind of diving into entrepreneurial endeavors. So I'm sure they're excited to hear that these kind of are applicable across sports, business, interviewing, all the different facets you mentioned. And I kind of want to rewind a little bit uh, when you mentioned you were you were – playing tennis, you're having the golden set, you got into the zone. I mean, for someone who's trying to apply this to their day-to-day -day life, how did you find that you actually did get into that zone? And then when you're in there, how do you stay in that zone? Yeah, that's a great question. So, um, you know, if I have any claim to fame in, in my, my work, it's that I'm pretty um, self-reflective. So I can have experiences, either myself as an athlete or performer or coaching, and I can look back on those experiences and, and kind of review them in my mind for different purposes. So that's one thing I've done as a result of that baseball pitching and the tennis. I've had other zone experiences before, maybe not as uh, uh, sharp as those two, sharp meaning like the, the ultimate. And by the way, in the, in the vernacular of uh, sports psychology, those ultimate experiences are called a peak uh, experience. Uh, Maslow wrote about that. But people can have zone experiences. In fact, at work, you can have a flow experience. If you have a good morning and things kind of get rolling your way and you have a series of successes and you feel momentum's going, well, that mojo we call flow. Now, if it goes a little higher and you're really flying, then you might call that the zone. So normally, that's kind of the nomenclature. Flow is like the beginning. 
the zone is the ultimate and then the all-time ultimate, which is really pretty rare. And that's noted in terms of twos and threes and fours over a lifetime. That would be a peak experience. So how did I get, get into that day in, in the tennis? Well, looking back on it, uh, I was really motivated to, uh, it was a beautiful day. I loved tennis. Uh, I didn't know the guy was going to play, but I knew he was going to be good. So I was excited about the match. I had a friend drive me because uh, I didn't have a driver's license yet. So I remember looking out the window. He had like a 1970 uh, Volkswagen bug. It was pretty loud. So I remember the thing being noisy, the roads being bumpy, and both of those probably contributed to putting me into a trance. I probably went into some hypnotic trance because I, I remember looking out the window and the, you know, the, 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 the view is kind of flashing by and the, both of those together kind of put me in reverie and I'm picturing uh, what I wanted to do in the match. All right, I mean, you're really going to move your feet light. You're going to be fast. You're going to react like crazy. You're going to crush the ball. Uh, you're going to get up to that quickly. You're going to do this. You're going to do that. I didn't know the name of it, but I was applying visualization. I was applying intentionality, I was applying a mental strategy or a game plan to what I was going to do. Part of that also, I was just amping up my motivation. So I remember I was, uh, I won't say high as a kite, but I, I was more acutely motivated maybe than any match I ever had before. I just couldn't wait to get out there. It's kind of like I had no fear at all. I should mention most people I work with come to me because they have, you know, let's say fear, phobia, anxiety, nerves, whatever you want to call it. There's all different levels. Uh, hardly anybody ever comes to a sports psychology uh, consultant when everything's going great. But I've had a few people do that. They usually come when there's a problem. It's been like a slump or a transition. They move a weight class, an age group from national, international, whatever, whatever. Um, so more challenges, more difficulties, more uncertainty. And that translates into insecurity. So they, they kind of lose their mojo and they lose their feel. That's why they call people like me. Coming back to that day, I remember having zero fear and nothing more than I can't wait to get out there. And I just unleashed all that energy in that first set. And I think that's how the zone occurred. You mentioned visualization. I would love to hear more about that. I mean, after that, did you develop a specific visualization practice? And is that something you continue to incorporate today? Exactly. So normally when people call me uh, or I, I do these interviews on radio or podcasts, uh, the most common characterization people have of, of people like myself is, oh, so you work in motivation, positive thinking, and visualization. And that's totally true, but there's a whole lot more to it than that. And there's also a lot more different levels of visualization. I'll give you an example. In fact, I'll combine what I just did with uh, me uh, picturing what I wanted to do in the tennis match, how a sales professional might set up their day. So, I was in that car looking out the window, kind of daydreaming, picturing how I wanted things to be. That's called intentionality. What am I going to do to the opponent? The average tennis player or athlete would, maybe if they're having a, a kind of a confidence uh, problem, would be more worried about what is that opponent going to do to me? However, that day, my focus is what am I going to do in the situation to make myself successful? That's intentionality. Uh, I went point by point, detail by detail. I think at that time, I probably was not talking out loud. I was just silently picturing in my mind. And that's classic visualization. I only pictured myself doing things successfully. Now, a salesperson can do that every day, whether they're driving to the office or having breakfast or whatever. They're taking a walk, taking the dog out on their run or on the treadmill. 
that's one of the most powerful things to do is just be intentional about how you want your day to go. Is it a guarantee that your day will go exactly like that? No, but you are much more likely to have a positive day and achieve the things you want to do because you're, you kind of think of it like uh, putting your goals in the movies. You know, you're, you're planning what you want to do that day and you're, you're using pictures probably in color and there's sound and everything to kind of bring them to life. Now, a very simple technique I use all the time, which is visualization, is called visual, I'm sorry, verbal visualization, and it goes like this. So if I were to, let me just try it with you, Sean. Let's say uh, here we are relatively early in the day and you got the rest of the day to go. Tell me, um, tell me five things you're going to do today that are going to be very successful. Even if you don't know they're going to be successful, say, well, I'm going to do this. This is going to turn out great. So go ahead and just give me like five examples. Uh, I'm going to schedule uh, a big client for an upcoming podcast I'm going to do. Uh, I have an investor call, and I hope to motivate the investors and kind of get a, a recent update in, in performance and sales and how they're doing. Uh, there's someone I mentor that I'm going to be have a meeting with later on this afternoon and get an update on how they're doing and, and what's next following steps for them. Uh, this evening, hope to have a nice dinner date with my wife and Obviously, the at-home relationship is, is key, so building on that. Um, and then at the end of the day, just trying to able to relax and kind of recap the day for me and, and set myself up for the next day. Perfect. All right, so great. So it sounded very positive, very intentional, you know, very clear-cut, great goals, and it kind of motivates you. Now, if we were doing a coaching session, I might uh, adjust your language a tiny bit when you say, I'm hoping to, I would use the language of I'm going to or I will, which is like a little more solid sounding. Then if you say, and I'm going to try to relax, I think if you say, I'm going to relax, it Mm -hmm. sounds more professional. So just little tweaks in the language uh, do make a difference. Um, All right, so verbal visualization is basically, tell me what you're going to do that day, or tell me what you're going to do in the sales call or in the presentation out loud. Just talk to me. Tell me your goals and how you're going to succeed. I I would imagine as you did that, even though I didn't tell you to do it, uh, were some of those... uh, Images popping in your head of what you're going to do? Exactly. Yep. And that's visualization using verbiage to ignite the visualization. So I've never really found the numbers. I've tried to discover this over the years, but probably about five or 6% of the entire population uh, cannot visualize. And when I say cannot visualize, it means like if you say close your eyes and picture thus and so or anything, they'll say there's nothing up there. It's just white, it's, it's dark, it's whatever. I have a sense of what you're talking about, but I can't picture a darn thing. Right, no problem. So for those people, we call it uh, more like kinesthetic or feelization, and pictures are not required as long as you get like the feel or the sense of what you're talking about. But the way the verbal visualization works is just start talking about what you want to do, and the pictures will follow nicely, and the pictures really... I tell people that words are important, but words lead to pictures which are more important because uh, you know they've done studies on the, the importance of different media when it comes to advertising. And print is pretty good. Radio is better. But what's the holy grail? TV or movies. Because you're, you're involving all the senses, color, movement, sound, the whole thing. Uh, let's see. So you wanted to ask about how does it apply to uh, – sales coaching and other business. Uh, oh, actually, let's back up a little bit. How do, you, how do you get in it and how do you stay in it? And what happens if you pop out of it? Um, that's a great question. Um, I wish I had like a perfect answer for that because then I'd be, you know, I could, you know, bottle what I'm, what I'm coaching here. But there are some 
uh, let's say, paradoxes of the zone. Example, the person gets in the zone, and if they haven't been in it too much and they're not that experienced, they'll be really excited about it, which is natural. And part of their excitement would be, let me figure out how I got in it so I can puff. And now Mm -hmm. the zone goes bye-bye because now they're trying to figure it out. The zone is not a place of thinking. The zone is a place of doing. Uh, Then the person, uh, they get back in the zone for whatever reason, and it's going along nicely, and they think, this is great. What if I click it up a couple of notches? Let me just step on that poof, and there goes the zone, because now the zone is not really a place you can force. Um, so essentially, I kind of liken the zone to somebody getting on a, uh, let's say, a surfboard where, you know, you know the board well and you have good balance, but the you'll stay on the board about as long as the wave lets you, because if the wave is intermediate, maybe you can stay on right to the end. If the wave is really nasty, it's going to bounce you off. So the zone is pretty similar where you have to kind of enjoy it while you got it. It's really hard to elongate. Uh, it's hard to intensify. Uh, you can ride the wave better by knowing those paradoxes and not making those uh, gaffes. Now, backing up a minute, how do you get in the zone? Well, you, you can't do this to the zone. You can't snap your fingers and get in it. You have to get in it gradually, typically. You remember my story of uh, before the tennis match, looking out the window in the car, that was a gradual lead up over probably 25 minutes of a car ride that really got me in a pathway for the zone to show up. Essentially, and we won't do it here, but when I have people in the office or, or video, I do this all around the world on video, and they want to work on getting in the zone. One thing I'll fact, we'll do the first part of it right here. Uh, I know you're a lacrosse guy, and you, in fact, you were all American in lacrosse and very involved in that, so played at a super high level. Um, think back, Sean, to I'm sure you had many zone experiences in lacrosse and maybe other sports, but think back to one time that jumps out in your mind where you would say, gee, that was the zone or my A game showed up or yeah, that was like one of the best ever. It could have been a portion of a game or a whole game, who knows. But just give me a few words that would describe uh, your memory of being in the zone that day. Uh, yeah, I mean, you, you mentioned some people really visualize, and I was very visual. So prior to the game, I, I, I understood what I was trying to go out there and do, and I would picture the other team, the stadium, all of those things. Uh, so during the event, when I was in the actual moment of the zone, um, it was really confidence. Uh, I just felt like I could do no wrong at the time. Um, and even if I did do something wrong, it wouldn't really affect me. So things were just moving cl- quicker. Um, for me, but everything seems slowed down in my mind. Uh, everything was just crystal clear for me. Beautiful. Okay, so that, that's a, a good uh, description there. Uh, most people, when I ask them, they can even, you know, I work with uh, people on uh, multiple Team USAs, Olympians, uh, national champions, world record holders, et cetera, et cetera. And even they, when they come to me, can only mention a couple things. You had about five or six. So yours was uh, a lot of visualization pregame felt very confident, felt like I could do no wrong, total mastery, total control. But here's the paradox, total control without over-controlling, no micromanagement. In fact, it's the opposite, it's letting go. So if there's maybe two prime features of the zone, it's kind of hard to boil them down, but in my experience, if you boil the whole thing down to two features, it's that one right there, letting go. Hmm. The zone is not a place that can be forced. It's a place that can be coaxed or invited, or come on over here, and you can set up the pathways, as you said, but you cannot force the zone. So letting go is number one, uh, just like you said. And number two would be quiet mind. So 
the other two you said here were, uh, uh, in, in my language, uh, I, I, you know, I, I had a good day, a really great day, but I didn't have a perfect day. No one, no one has a perfect day even in the zone. You make some mistakes, but how do you deal with them then? You blow them off. It's like they don't exist. So that we're going to come back to that in a minute because that's a really big feature that prevents people from getting in the zone. And then finally, you, you made a really nice uh, turn of phrase where you said, everything was quicker, but my mind was slower. So probably a couple months ago, I interviewed one of the members of the uh, World Series champion uh, um, team, uh, the Boston Red Sox, and uh, about the zone. And I said, tell me about the zone when you're in it. The very first thing he said is what you said. You know, the first thing I do before the game is I slow my mind down. Wow. Like, that was incredible to hear. He went on to describe how he did it. But here's a, a you know World Series champion describing that, that thing to a T just like you did. So the two things would be, again, getting your mind quiet. And I do that by teaching either meditation or centering or breathing techniques, which you asked about before. I think we can get into that a little bit here. Uh, and once the person learns how to do that centering type of thing where they release their stress, they feel more relaxed, the muscles let go. And as part of that, the mind kind of calms down, opens up, gets more clear uh, what happens, this is really how it slows down. And he described this process to me that I use, and maybe this happened to you, but when you relax your body by breathing, letting go, maybe visualization, you, you do get this letting go effect. The muscles release, you feel a little heavier in the chair or whatever you're doing. Your mind opens up and lets go and clears out. So that is what makes the zone trigger is the clearing out of your mind and the letting go, because the zone is a place of calm and beauty and simplicity. Now flip that on its side, upside down. Now tell me about a time, just briefly, Sean, where you had a bad game, where it wasn't because you played bad, but you had a bad game maybe because you were blocking yourself from trying too hard, or you were nervous, or combinations. Just tell me a few words out about that. I was very routine-oriented, so from the arrival to the stadium, how I would interact with teammates pregame, um, what my stretching routine looked like, and when those things would kind of get thrown out of whack, it would it would mess me up a little bit where it, something just felt a little bit off, and I was upset that I wasn't able to execute my routine to a T. Um, and then during the actual game, I just felt heavier. Things weren't flowing as well. Um, Things, like I mentioned before, that seemed slow down just seemed quicker, and I was constantly trying to catch up. Uh, I'd even notice certain things like getting out of breath or being tired where my conditioning was fine, and, and other points I would be absolutely fine with that, where in these games and these scenarios, uh, it seems like I could just never catch up to the pace of play. Great description. Okay, so this is the, uh, the sequence I use with people. First, tell me about the zone, and we discuss it. And why do you want to discuss the zone? It's like, gee, I thought you said the zone was a place of just action and not thinking. Well, we're not performing right now. We're discussing it so you can use it when you perform. And I've discovered that, uh, I mean, take, take your favorite city 100 miles away. If you have to go to that city every week over the course of a couple months, I would assume you'd get some kind of map or you'd turn on the navigation. But after two or three weeks, I would assume also that because you know the turns and the this and the that, you wouldn't need navigation nearly as much, if at all. So what you did was you took a, a real place, this other city and streets to get there, uh, and you used a map, which is a representation, but you took the map and you popped it in your head, and now the map is in your head. That's the same thing 
I do when I have people describe the zone. Once you really intimately understand what the zone is, it's easier to get back there the same way you can get back to that city 100 miles away. But when someone comes to me and they're choking or slumping or having a bad series of games or whatever, they're way far away from the zone. They don't understand what it is at all, typically, and they're all wrapped up in what's going wrong. So that's really the starting point is have them understand intimately what the zone is. I have a detailed checklist on that. And once we do that, they say, yeah, I mean, I fill in the gaps like I'm doing here with you. Once the two of us do that, people go, yeah, I, yeah, I understand the zone a lot more. I also do this thing where I flip it upside down. Now, tell me about a time you choked. I might use that term or you had a horrible game. And what you said was, I'm a routine guy. So, uh, gee, my routines were off that day. I didn't get to do them or they didn't feel right. And I felt heavier, slower, a step behind, uh, more of a struggle. I'll throw my own words in. It felt forced. Uh, uh, I had put a lot more energy out. There was no flow. I was out of breath. So one short vignette I tell is I was a freshman in college. I had this college scholarship as a tennis player. Uh, what are you, 17, 18 years old, in the peak of health, I could run miles and miles, sprints. I remember the first match I had of my collegiate career, I'd get out there, warm up, really excited, warmed up great, felt perfect. And then uh, the referee or whoever it was said, all right, play. And the moment that word, let's go, or play, uh, I locked up just like a, like a pipe wrench. Couldn't move, feet were like lead, knees wouldn't bend, guys hitting the ball pat, I was totally out of breath. Now, it took me a long time in that match to pull it together. I, I was basically, you know, just freaking out because I didn't want to mess up in my first collegiate match. Now, that might be the third story that would stick with me in terms of career. Like, I didn't know why that was happening. I, I didn't know anything about sports psychology. I never had a psychology class. It was first basically a couple of weeks of uh, college. Uh, somehow I got through the match. I think I won, but it was a heck of a struggle. So typically when people are choking or having a bad day. First of all, choking is not a sign of uh, bad character. It doesn't mean you're a bad person. Everybody chokes. It's important to realize everybody chokes. Even at the Olympic national professional level, everybody chokes. So it's nothing to worry about. In fact, uh, through the whole career, it's like it's an impossible thing to stop choking permanently. I can't do that either. All, all we can do is help you choke uh, less often and get in the zone more. Um, but now coming back to errors. So I said that when you're having a great day, you're not perfect, but and you're making some errors, but your relationship with errors is very different. You don't pay them much mind. You let them go because what are you focused on? Success. Doing this and that to the opponent, taking care of business, doing your strategy, listening to the coach, you know, talking to teammates, you're all on the right cues and focusing on what's wrong are the wrong cues. So story. A couple of years ago, a player from Stanford University comes to me. We're about 20 minutes south of Stanford. Uh, they're in Palo Alto, which is about 40 minutes south of San Francisco. My offices are in Cupertino, right around the corner from Apple World Headquarters. And yes, it does look, a, look like a spaceship, but the, the new one. So so they come to me and, uh, gee, I'm, uh, I'm an All-American two years in a row. Oh, great record. Yeah, but I'm uh, getting benched. What's going on? Well, you know, I get in the game and I start off okay, but I make a mistake. And I just, it really irritates me making a mistake. And I, then I make another one. Before you know it, I'm, I'm either benched or I made a third one. Then I'm benched. And boy, I'm just dropping like a stone. You got to help me. 
all right, uh, long story made short, talked to the person, did an interview, analyzed their situation. And they said, by any chance, are you a, a math or engineering major? How did you know that? Okay, well, you're probably, like when you make your error, are you starting to like analyze and figure out what went wrong while you're actually in the game? How did you know that? Well, I've been doing this a long time. That's what engineer and you know mathematicians, even non-engineers do. So now we're describing what someone does when they're not in the zone and mistakes occur. I got to stop making that mistake. Well, how did it go wrong? What did I do? How do I stop it? Let's see. I, this, I can't do this again. Ooh, if you keep doing this, this is going to, oh, this is going to, oh, I'm on the bench. What happened? So basically, when a mistake is made, if the person gets wrapped around a spindle trying to figure out why it happened, and oh my God, now it's happening, this is the worst time for it to happen, how do I fix it, and all that stuff, well now, where's their head? Their head is not in the game anymore. Now they're being some kind of academic scientist up in some tower trying to figure out what went wrong while this ball is spinning around around them. Now, again, contrast that with when you're in the zone. You make a mistake, you don't give two minds at all to your errors. You just assume that you probably won't make many more and you're all focused on success. So mistake management is one of the biggest things I deal with is helping people figure out how to reduce their mistakes and keep going. So another little kind of cute story I use is uh, Freddie Couples, the pro golfer. He's in the seniors now mainly. But when he was on the main tour, you know, he was one of the top guys, won quite a few things. And he's out in some tournament one day. And, you know, in pro golf, uh, the the commentators and broadcasters can be right on the course with their uh, microphones and they can walk up to the players between shots and dead periods. So one day, uh, middle of a tournament, uh, some broadcaster walks up to Freddie and says, hey, Freddie, we have a couple minutes here. I wonder if you could tell the audience uh, what, like, mental process you use uh, after you hit a bad shot. What do you do? And he sticks the microphone in Freddie's face, and Freddie says, um, well, I walk up to the ball, and I select the club, and I hit the shot. And the, the broadcaster says, that's pretty funny, Freddie. But I, know, I know that's what you do, but tell, tell me what you're thinking, and how do you correct that mistake? He puts the microphone in Freddie's mouth again, and Freddie says, I walk up to the ball, figure out the situation, pull the club, hit the shot. And the guy says, you don't try to cor- how come you don't try to correct it? Freddie says, I trust my swing. So this is an apocryphal, but a real story, which describes uh, consistent performers. When they're in the zone, they trust. They don't second guess. They don't doubt. And this is the definition of confidence. I'll give you my full definition. And that's why people like Freddie were consistent performers. This is the key thing is consistency, not one-timers. So my definition of confidence, Sean, is, First of all, two things it's not. Confidence is not achieved by remembering the things you did poorly. Number two, confidence is not achieved by thinking of the things you're going to do well because it didn't happen yet. Confidence is mainly achieved by remembering the things you did well. So to, to come back to a, a very common pro golfer technique, and I've worked with quite a few, still do, um, the golfer gets in the rough, it's a bad shot in the rough, and it's a certain kind of grass, a certain distance from where he used to hit it, under a tree, certain yardage, certain wind, certain weather conditions. So he walks up to the ball or she, and uh, he looks at it and he thinks, yeah, this is similar to what happened about a month ago down at Sawgrass. And let's see, what did I do there to get out of there? And he's now visualizing a memory 
a successful, successful memory of getting out of that, you know, crabgrass or whatever. And they said, yeah, that's what I'll do right here. So he's confident from a past successful memory. He applies that learning to the current situation, gets the shot, gets out, it's all good. So I call those data points or success points or confidence memories. And this is one of the big tricks that uh, confident performers have that younger performers don't have yet. When you're a younger performer in a sport or sales or public speaking or whatever, you don't have that many really successful experiences to remember. But after you've had years and years and years or months and months and months of successful experiences and you've logged them into your brain. So this is important coming back to that retrospective thing, the reflective thing, reviewing your successes. After a really good sales call, you should sit down with somebody or by yourself and make log entries of why was it good? Write down some words that describe how it was, just like we describe your zone. We have words for the zone, expressions for the zone. What that does is lock in the learning or lock in the success. So next time you're in a similar situation on a sales call in your sport, well, you can go back in your memory banks and search for that similar or exact situation. Remember how well you did and what's the expression? Hey, if I did it before, I can do it again. And this is kind of the secret of confidence is having a whole big bank account of confident memories to draw upon because when things are tough, that's what professionals do. They go back in their mind of how they succeeded before, which gives them the proof and the self-belief. And, and if you don't have a lot of those, then you have to kind of make it up. But uh, that's what they do. No, that memory bank for confidence is just, it's so interesting. I've never heard it articulated that way. Now that I think about it, I mean, I can go back for for years in, in different moments or games I've replayed in my head over and over again. I think that really fueled the confidence. I, I'm curious. So a lot of times growing up, you would hear that the losses are going to hurt more and you'll remember them more. My own self, I, I the losses would hurt. I'd forget them pretty quickly, but I would relive those moments of joy with huge wins much longer. What does that say about my, my own self? Uh, it means you're a natural peak performer. So the expression that I use for that is you want a short memory for the bad and a long memory for the good. Hmm. That describes what we just said when I was giving all that explanation that describes it. So people that come to me for whatever, uh, gee, I just messed up. I just failed. I, I, it was a catastrophe. It was horrible. I've had a string of those. I'm in a slump. So I listen. You know, Obviously, you have to listen. I want to listen. They have to tell their story. They've got to get it out of themselves. And I have to hear all everything that went wrong so I can assist them. Then I say to them, anything else you want to say about it? Yeah, a few more things. They throw out a couple more things. And I say one more time, anything else? Uh, no, I think I'm complete. Okay, then never bring it up again. Hmm. Don't let anybody else bring it up again the rest of your life because you've learned everything you need to learn from it. I mean, we're going to learn more right here. So we're going to discuss what to do, not what went wrong. But every time you bring up what went wrong, all you're doing is beating yourself up. You're, you're tearing yourself down. And that's not where confidence lives. Remember our definition. It's not what you did wrong. Now, when I deal with, uh, let's say, parents or maybe a sales manager, oftentimes I'll go out on a sales call with a, a team. There's a sales manager driving the car. I'm in the front, two guys in the back, whatever. And the sales manager, well, we were here last month. And I remember what went wrong. And the sales manager gives a litany of what went wrong, thinking it's helpful. Why does he think it's helpful? Well, you can avoid it. 
I, I just want you to remember so you don't make that same mistake. Okay. Well, remember our verbal visualization? Well, the sales manager just did verbal visualization, but of a negative variety. So people don't realize that, but remember, words are important. And why are they important? Because words convert into pictures and images, and images are far more powerful in the mind than just words. So if you have the choice of being positive or negative, this, this kind of describes in a nutshell why it's important to be positive uh, because of those powerful pictures and images. So basically, don't let, even if somebody brings it up, hey, Sean, remember the time you messed up on blah, blah, blah? I would change the subject or I would say, you know, if you don't mind, that's something I put to rest. I don't think about that anymore. Let's talk about what we're going to do to be successful here, which I'm sure you've had with great coaches. That's what really works better. So what about when I mentioned the time that I, I wasn't in flow, I wasn't in the zone, there were factors that I couldn't control. Maybe it was a rival to the stadium was late. So what do you do to overcome those factors you can't control so they don't negatively affect you? Another great question. Well, if you uh, if you have your, part of it could be maybe the rituals a person has. If the ritual or routine they have is extremely lengthy or complicated or needs certain uh, physical things, like people have lucky things they do. Uh, you know, baseball is well known for having a lot of superstitions and rituals. The guy cannot step on the line. He's got to do things in a certain order. Now, if those things are not able to be achieved, the person feels very off. So I listen to people's rituals, whatever it's in, and what I recommend you do is keep your rituals simple enough, like change them or convert them, where they can be simple enough that you can always do them. Uh, part of it might be that you do them covertly, like no one knows you're doing them. Uh, so that would be the, the starting point. Now, another thing would be you want certain things you can do that are mobile, things meaning like uh, breathing techniques, visualization, self-talk, slogans you use. So let's say, let's take your situation when you're in the stadium and you feel off and maybe it's like uh, 20 minutes to go, 30 minutes to go before the game. You just don't feel like yourself. Even, even though you warmed up and everything should be normal, you feel off. And part of the, this is the nature of uh, performance in general and maybe athletics in particular because uh, you can have a good day or you can be a great athlete and do everything correct on a given day but still not feel like yourself. And this is just normal human variability. So uh, maybe you've heard the expression, then what would kick into gear would be the slogan or something like you say to yourself, all right, Maybe today I have to win ugly. All right, maybe today is going to be a rough one, but uh, I'm determined to succeed. All right, so I don't feel like myself. Well, I'm going to I'm going to win anyhow. I'm going to have a good story to tell. I don't feel normal. Well, I'm a professional, so professionals uh, persevere. I don't feel normal. Well, you know what? I'm comfortable being uncomfortable. That doesn't bother me at all. So here we go. So you would give yourself some little slogan or self-talk or pep talk, whatever you want to call it, that does a reframe on the whole deal. So you have an inexperienced person feeling off, and now they're going to be freaking about that. Oh, my God, I'm off. I'm going to have a bad game. I don't feel normal. I don't have the feel, the touch. So what's going on here? Now, again, the experienced person has been through that dozens of times, and he thinks back or she thinks back, well, let me... You know, about two months ago, I had a similar feeling, and that turned out fine. I actually played a good game. I didn't play, like, the best game in my life. It was a very workable game. I even scored some goals. I had good D. I'm going to do the same thing today. So there's that 
positive memory that the person latches on to, to pull into the present, to give them confidence in spite of what's going on. I'll give you one more definition of confidence. This is a pretty good one. This is not mine, but I, I like this one a lot. Confidence is self-belief in the face of data that proves otherwise. So I'll say it a different way. The expression you gave, I don't feel normal. That's the data that really tells you, hey, you know, you're going to have a bad day today. Well, you overrid that by thinking all these things we just said, well, I'm comfortable being uncomfortable. I did it before. I can do it again. Hey, I did this exactly the same way two, two weeks ago. This is nothing. In fact, what I did two weeks ago is even more, more difficult. This is a lot easier. I'm, I'm going to be fine. So what you did was encourage yourself and calm yourself down by using your success points, which you brought into the present. Make sense? Oh, no, entirely. I mean, this is so fascinating to me. I'm, I'm even thinking about there were certain games where I had an injury midweek. And I mean, it was even a question of if I was going to be able to play that weekend. And and then my thought process was, you know what, this is some huge task now I can overcome. And I'm I'm more invigorated and I'm more excited about almost proving people wrong. And, and I went out and had some of my best games during moments like that. So it's just very fascinating to hear you talk about it. Beautiful. Yeah. So your thought process is really good. I mean, I, I tell people, you know, if you have a, a bad start to the game or you're not feeling correct, uh, right in the session, I'll say, think back to the last time that happened. Now tell me how you succeeded anyhow. And that's a mind shift for people because they're thinking, I, I want them to tell me how they screwed up. And instead I pull the rug out from it and I say, tell me how you succeeded anyhow. Now they have to go to a positive memory, just like you did. One of my favorites one, favorite ones when I used to compete would be, uh, let's say I'm playing doubles and uh, we're out there getting shellacked or getting beat. And I turn to my partner and I say, you know, we're going to win this. And when we win it, we're going to have one heck of a story to tell. Hmm. And that's really an interesting reframe to a, a, a teammate because maybe they're thinking all is lost. And now you're walking up to him telling him, we're going to win this. And afterwards, you know, we're going to go for a beer and laugh about it. Well, that puts the whole thing in perspective and kind of takes the tension off the whole thing. So, so one more thing I wanted to uh, throw into the mix here about the zone is, uh, but I've been kind of uh, referencing it without talking about it directly, is when I ask people about the zone, they tell me the story, we kind of lock it in. And the other way I use that when I write down their words and phrases about their zone is maybe in a, in a second session later, I'll say, all right, let's do that centering. And we might even do a little hypnosis or whatever, whatever we're going to do that day. But I relax them. Then I say, let's go back to uh, when you were at your finest hour. Uh, think of a time, whether it's a salesperson or an athlete or whatever, speaker, public speaker. And think of when you really shined. And let me know when you're there. And they kind of nod their head. All right, now I start reading their words that they gave me last week or whatever about the zone. And I enhance it a little bit. And I start describing their zone experience and we put that on tape like we're doing here and they take that away and now they can utilize that as a pregame or a pre-sales call or a pre-day or pre-speech, whatever, kind of a pump up, which really does help people get in the zone. So that's, that's a really uh, simple but powerful technique. Is there something someone can incorporate? Maybe they don't have access to someone like you right away, whether it's a, a music playlist, something like that. Do those work as well? Those are fantastic as well. So that, that's a really common kind of uh, pregame routine for anybody, any kind of performer. Um, you know, people have their favorite playlists and there's kind of two 
uh, aspects of a playlist. Yeah, I need, I'm, I'm kind of wound up too much. I'm kind of wired. All right, then go to your playlist that calms you down. You know, I'm kind of flat. I'm, I'm not really up for what I'm going to do. All right, now go to your playlist that's a little more up-tempo and get, get up. And now we're talking about something called IAN, uh, Ideal Activation Number. So, Sean, think back to when you played great lacrosse and uh, it could have been right before the game and also in the game. And on a scale of 1 to 10, one is uh, you're very relaxed and you're about to fall asleep, which you wouldn't be at a lacrosse game. Five is maybe the way we are right here, just a normal day. Ten would be either wired out of your mind or bouncing off the walls, excess energy, ADD, that whole thing. Let's say on a scale of one to ten before a good lacrosse game, what number might have you been? It's funny. Earlier in my career, I would have probably said a nine where my energy level was almost too high and I realized that it was too high and kind of had to bring it down. And I'd say more six or seven, it was kind of a, a relaxed inner confidence. Great, great language. Now, everybody's number is different and everybody's number is different in, in different sports. And then also, if you're in a team sport, your number is different according to position. So there's no magic number, but generally people are between five and seven or eight. You know, I've had a few people that have been nines, like you said, I've even had a few people say, I need to be a 10. Never had anybody really be below five. So this fits into your, your pregame thing. Well, if you know your number is a seven, for example, and it's 20 minutes to go before the game and you're all warmed up sitting on the bench <clears throat> and you're thinking, Jen, really peaceful. I'm really calm. I feel good. But wait a minute, I'm only a four. Well, now you've got a problem if you're only a four. You, you need to be a seven. So you've got to pump up your number a few clicks here. How do you do that? Get up and do some calisthenics, run around, do some sprints, deep knee bends, jump rope, do something, longer warm-up, you name it. Before you know it, your number goes five, six, seven. Okay, I got it locked in here, and now you start the game. If it's the other way, if you're too high, eight, nine, whatever, now you probably need to sit more, visualize, deep breathing, talk to someone friendly and nice, remind yourself how much you love the game you play or the, your, your, the job you have or the person you're going to go speak to, and a good little thing called the gratitude piece would be helpful to kind of calm you down too. And uh, I used to be the uh, sports psychology coach for Stanford baseball team two years ago. And the head coach was fantastic. He just retired recently. Uh, and I remember being in the locker room before we played uh, some playoff game, I think against UCLA. And the whole team's in there and the coach gets up there and he says, now guys, we're about to go play UCLA, one of the best college teams on the planet, like us. We're in the playoffs to get into the World Series. Right now, we're ranked number one in the country. They're number two. Could life get any better than this right now? And he was just dead silent, and the whole room goes, yeah. So he had him in the palm of his hand, and that's the total truth, meaning everybody wanted to be where they were right there. And that's the gratitude or appreciation piece of, you know, maybe you've seen like uh, coffee mugs or T-shirts, you know, uh, the worst day on a baseball field is better than the best day in any office. Which means whatever you're doing, you know, if you really like what you're doing, that changes the whole pressure gradient dynamic away from, oh, my God, I've got to do this, boredom, to, oh, my God, I've got to do this, fear. Well, if you enjoy what you're doing and you appreciate what you're doing, and where you are, well, basically, that's the antidote to fear because you want to be where you are. So that factors in what reason I brought that up was if you're like a nine or a 10, 
that little gratitude piece drops you down to the appropriate level. So I don't know how much more time we have, but I want to mention something about time zones and then we could talk breathing here. Yeah, no, that'd be great. So I've been alluding to the time zones, but let's talk about it uh, head on. So I ask people, hey, when you're in the zone, you know, there's the past, the present, and the future. What time zone are you in? And everyone readily says the present. And let's say you have a bad play and you're upset about it. The, the next, next play hasn't started, or maybe it is started, but you had a bad play and you're ticked off about that play. You're grousing, you're whining, you're angry to yourself. Uh, what time zone are you in there? The past. And let's say another play is coming up and uh, you're afraid of what could go wrong. You're, you're like thinking if it really does go wrong, I might get benched. Uh, we might lose the game. What time zone are you in there? The future. So this describes the problem where this is really what corrupts performance. People get in the wrong time zone. Performance is always done in the present. Now, someone could say, well, wait a minute, our body is always in the present. What do you mean? Yes, our body is always in the present. But we gave those two examples of the mind not being in the present uh, while the body was. So if you're angry or you have lament, you're upset, you're emotional about what went wrong, you're trying to figure out what went wrong, all those things are past orientation. If you're fearful or worried or anxious, that's always future orientation. Now, when someone in a, it could be a sales call, it could be a presentation, if the person accesses the past and the present and the future, they kind of zoom all over the place. We call that time travel. They're time traveling all over the place. And eventually they maybe hopefully pull it together. You know, let's say the next play is going to start or they get out of their, their car to, make, to go in the office or they pick the phone up. Unfortunately, if they're not very good at getting rid of that zooming around, that turns into mental baggage. So the guy that takes the place kick uh, is thinking about what could go wrong. And he looks pretty good, but he seems a little off and he misses the place kick. He comes off the field. The coach says, what happened? I was kind of worried about what was going on. I, I knew you didn't look right. Hmm. So Normally, when the person is not in the right time zone, there will be some physical correlates. And normally what we see, the first thing we see really, is the person's routines corrupt. So the tennis player gets out there, and you, know, you could take any decent tennis player, and if you look at them uh, before they serve, they bounce the ball a prescribed number of times according to them. It could be three, it could be four, it could be one. If you watch them you know, uh, 20 weeks in a row, they're always going to have that number, that three bounce, and then they serve. Now, you and I are watching a tennis player. They're having a bad day at the office, so to speak. They're all upset. They're worried. They're choking. Suddenly, we see that they, they're going to serve. We see they only bounce the ball one time. They mess it up. Why? Well, that's an indicator that their in, internal mental state has revved up, and they feel, let me just get it over with. I'm too worried. And instead of doing their three, which is their lock solid routine that makes them feel normal, they only do a one. Now, let's say we keep watching them. They're still serving. Now, instead of doing a three, we see them go three, four, five, six, seven, eight. What's going on there? They've lost their nerve. Hmm. They're overthinking. So still, now it corrupted the other direction. So the answer is get back to your routine, which helps you feel normal. You know, there's two kinds of routines in sport and really any performance. You have pregame routine, like you described before you get in the stadium or even in the stadium. And then there's pre-action routine, before the kick, before 
this before that, you know, time out, you come back in, that sort of thing. Both of those are really important to know your routines and to keep them very strict because, again, that makes you feel normal. And very importantly, that puts your mind into the present time zone. So essentially, to wrap up the time zones, the past is valuable if you have dead time. Like, you know, the coach says, come over here, get on your knees. Well, here's the chalkboard and he describes what went wrong. Now, here's what we're going to do. Now, the coach just put you in the future. All of that is very valid. Now, once that's done, you have to get rid of all that thinking and just assume you're going to remember it and just get into the action, which puts you in the present time zone. So basically, the present is the holy grail where all performers want to be. And when they're messing up, they're not in the present. Even though they think they're in the present, they're kind of only partially in the present. And their mind is zooming around. So it kind of give you a little perspective there. Yeah, no, I mean, I, I'd never actually even heard about the time zone. So this, this is fascinating to hear about. Um, I think you wanted to know a little bit more about uh, breathing. Do, do we have a few more minutes, Sean? Yeah, let's hit on some breath work. Yeah, so uh, based on your email to me, and I know you've had other uh, people on here, they've talked about breath. I won't get into a whole lot of it other than to say there's a few kind of go-to techniques I use, and I describe it kind of like this to people. You know, I, I learned their background. Let's say I discovered that uh, somebody I'm working with is uh, was a musician or is a musician. I say, oh, what do you play? I play the trumpet. Very good. I, I used to play the trombone. So you remember your first day when you had your lesson on your trumpet? What, what did the band director do? You know, he, he brought three of us in the room and he sat us down. And we were all looking around for the trumpet. We didn't see a trumpet. We're sitting in the chair. He taught us how to sit. Then he started teaching us how to breathe. And then he says, hold on a minute. He goes back, comes back with uh, three mouthpieces, gives us the mouthpiece, showed us how to put our mouth in the mouthpiece, breathing and the whole thing. We're kind of blowing through the stupid mouth. Still no trumpet. What's going on here? Well, that was exactly how he learned trombone as well. So then I asked the person, can you be even a decent Trumpet player, if you don't know how to breathe, no, no way. Zero. You can't even get a sound. I mean, if you could get a sound, it's a terrible sound. So exactly. Could you be a good swimmer if you don't know how to breathe? No, you drown. Could you be a good fencer or tennis player or golfer or lacrosse player if you don't know how to breathe? Gee, I never thought about that. I, I, have you ever been taught breathing from any of your coaches in lacrosse? I had never been, but I heard a story. There's a legendary coach, Bill Tierney, forever. He was at Princeton. And uh, when I was growing up, a player who I knew who was playing for him at the time mentioned that Coach T used to make his players talk during ground ball scrums because he didn't want them holding their breath and not being able to breathe during those moments. That was the only time I've ever heard about it in the sport. Great technique. So the, the reason he wanted you to talk so you didn't hold your breath, so that's that's a good way to do it. So essentially, you know, again, I get people at super high levels coming to me and I'll ask them their history and their sport, whatever the sport is. And I'll say just what I asked to you, Sean. So what have you been told or taught over the years uh, from your coaches or anybody maybe bringing in consultants or experts about breathing? Huh? Very little. What did they tell you? Um, just don't choke. Just <laughs> don't hold your breath. Um, uh, you know, now I'll tell you that the sports that are probably a little more advanced because, well, people always ask me, what are the most psychological sports, whatever that means? But uh, there is a, a distinct answer. By psychological, it means what sports have the most written about them in the sports psychology world? Who has the most sports psychology books? And what is what coaches talk the most about sports psychology historically? Well, number one is golf. 
Number two is tennis by far, both of those. Third might be baseball. So when I get those athletes coming, they've heard a bunch of things about the mental game. They've heard some things about breathing. All these other sports, by and large, have not. So typically, if it's not one of these sports, and I ask that question of, so what have you been taught over the years about breathing? I see their shoulders shrug and they go, nothing really. So then the question comes up, how could the person get to the national level or whatever high level they're at and not know much about breathing? Um, attrition, hard work, um, perseverance, dedication, a little bit of luck. Well, that's all true. But now they've hit kind of like a barrier where the fact that they're not paying attention to their breathing is getting in the way more consistently. Now, they don't know that, but we uncover that in our sessions. And I, I have an analysis I do with them. And we very quickly under, uh, uncover that. I'm assuming from the get-go, that's probably part of the problem once they tell me, no, we, I don't do anything about my breathing. Well, there you go. So you can't play the trumpet without knowing about breathing. You can't swim. You also cannot, here's our word again, consistently perform in your sport if you don't know about breathing because where, what time zone is breathing in always? The present. What time zone are emotions in? The past or the future. So if you get rid of the emotions and the expression I use, let's say you focus on your breathing, you feel calmer, your mind clears out, your muscles relax to the right degree at number seven on the IAN scale. But what happens is the emotions go bye-bye. And the expression we use is you want to keep your, you, you want to keep your emotions uh, kind of low and high, but right in the middle. So you, you don't want to get too excited because if you get really excited, what goes up must come down. So then I get people that say, well, wait a minute, I, I play on emotion. I did too. But this kind of emotion, passion, interest, desire, motivation, excitement, but not viscerally observable emotion. When you watch really great athletes, they're all business. They got their game face on. They're taking care of business. They score the goal and they celebrate. So there the emotions show up. And when they're in the action, really no emotions. It's all down to brass tacks. So in terms of breathing techniques, I, I teach quite a few, but the centering thing where I, I teach them to sit in the chair, I can kind of run through it pretty quickly. You sit in the chair and you're, you're picking a go-to. A go-to is something that you're looking at uh, continuously. And it could be like a knickknack on your desk. It could be look out the window at the top of a tree or a building, something that is not going to move a whole lot. You just kind of stare at it, not like hard, but you stare at it. And what, there's a reason behind that. That restricts the vision and the activity of the vision because every time the mind or the eyes travel and the mind will see something new, the mind will think about that thing. But if you restrict it to one simple little thing, it doesn't matter what it is, now the mind is calmed down automatically because your visual activity is lessened. So you start like that, you sit in the chair comfortably, lean to your left, lean to your right a tiny bit, find the center of those two. This is not like yoga. You don't have to hold a pose. You can scratch your nose if you have to scratch your nose. Then I'll talk about um, kind of feel the chair using your fingertips. So you run your fingers around the arms of the chair, the seating area, touch the, your clothing, touch the top of the desk. They all have a different sensation. What did you do right there? Well, you just kicked in your sense of touch. 
So now what you've got going is a little bit less thinking. You're more feeling. You're more sense-oriented. We call that sensate. You're hearing me. You're looking at your go-to. You just did your sense of touch. You kind of grounded yourself left, right, center. And then I'll get into different breathing techniques. Uh, We'll talk about uh, square breathing, which is a common technique. You breathe in through the nose slowly. You hold it for about five or 10 seconds. You breathe out through the mouth even slower, up to seven or 10 seconds. When all the air is out, you just kind of pause for whatever amount of time, breathing naturally. We rinse and repeat. Now, I might even count them in, count them out. Let's go. Breathe in one, two, three, four, and so on. Hold it for 10, count them out to 10. That's called ratio breathing. So four or square breathing just means you get four elements, the in, the hold, the out, the pause. Ratio breathing, you put numbers on it. That's why they call it ratio. And uh, that gives you kind of some intentionality or routine to it. I'll tell them reach for the sky or reach for the ceiling and stretch. Take a nice long yawn. That opens up the mouth, relaxes the face muscles, and you kind of stretch the face out, which is very important. That further relaxes the person because basically they, uh, most people hold their attention in four big areas, the jaw or the face, uh, let's say the, the neck or upper shoulders, and then the lower back. So when you open up the face uh, muscles, that makes a big difference. Uh, what did Michael Jordan do when he played basketball with regard to his mouth? even talks about it. He had slack jaw, right? And guys on the Warriors, what do they do? I mean, they're, they're chewing their uh, mouth guard when they're doing free throws, for God's sake. And why do they do such a thing? Well, it feels more like casual to them, more like they're in practice. They always do it, so why not keep doing it? Hmm. And just like when Coach T would say, you need to talk when, you, when you're doing your drills, opening the mouth and chewing the, the little guard prevents lock jaw. I mean, literally... Uh, that's one of the biggest things I see, you know, whatever the athlete is doing. I, I go watch them play or they give me their video. I can just see their face all locked up. So you've got to have that lower jaw relaxed. So after that, we do a thing called the one breath where I say, ready, set, go. Take your breath in slowly. And if I'm working with an athlete, uh, they probably can hold it for 30, 40, 50 seconds. So we select the number. I say, let's go. And I'm doing the counting. They're holding it and they let it all go in a whoosh. We do it one more time. That's the one breath. And interesting thing happens there. When they hold it, their pulse rate rises, which seems counterintuitive to relaxing. But when you release it, after a few seconds, your pulse rate drops considerably. So it is kind of a paradoxical effect, and you could try it sometime. A lot of people report that uh, of all the breathing techniques, that's a pretty powerful one. Um, So those are kind of the main breathing techniques. I've got others that I do too. And uh, there's other, you know, sometimes we talk about meditation, we talk about mindfulness. That's a very powerful approach. But that's kind of the approach I use to get to people into feeling calm and let go, open mind, relaxed mind. And then, by the way, when they're in that mode, I'll say, right now you're probably feeling, and I'll list off those things. Heavier is another one, more peaceful joyful even, you know, restful, pleasant, all those words. I might even use some of the words they gave me on their zone. And then I'll say to them the following. What you just did was 100% you and 
almost 0% me because I didn't do a thing to you except guide you. You did everything. So you can repeat the experience you just gave yourself anytime you want. Now you've got it on tape. And more importantly, what you just did was create this inner world of calmness, peacefulness, relaxation, and that is your inner zone. That's the inner zone you're going to create pre-game or pre-speech or pre-phone call or pre-sales call to give yourself that confident, calm feeling, which you take into your performance. So I call that pre-zone. It happens inside the person first. If it doesn't happen inside the person first, it's much more difficult to happen in reality, which brings us back to when you said, some days I went in the stadium and I didn't feel normal. Probably you didn't achieve that inner state that you normally did. So that given day, you didn't have that inner state. And that's what made you feel off. But once you know this mental technology, this can be achieved covertly and quickly. Now we did it, I don't know, we've been talking a while here, but um, normally with people, I do it probably a good, I don't know, seven minutes or so straight. But once you get the experience of this inner place, it can be replicated by yourself uh, very easily and quickly and covertly, eyes open, walking around, Riding in a car, I wouldn't do it when you're driving, but, you know, some place where it's relatively simple. Pre-game, minutes to go before the game, within literally, Sean, seconds. So with practice, doing this often enough at home, you know, kind of in a quiet place, you can get so attuned to this and so used to it and so knowledgeable about where to go because it is a real place. It just happens to be inside you that you can easily reachieve that at will Again, within 10 seconds, 15, 20 seconds. I mean, Bill, this has been absolutely fascinating. I'm so appreciative of your time today. And I I know the listeners are going to be begging for a round two of this. So hopefully we can schedule that at some point. But uh, I want to make sure everyone can get connected with you. Where should we direct them? Absolutely. It's been my pleasure to speak with you today, Sean. We'd love to come back again. So my corporate website is mentalgamecoach.com, Bill Cole. My sports psychology website, I've got two. One is sportspsychologycoaching.com. And I also uh, train and certify people in my method, and that's mentalgamecoaching.com. You can see me on Twitter at Bill B. Cole. Great. Well, we'll make sure to get all that linked up in the show notes. But Bill, once again, I can't thank you enough for coming on. Sean, my absolute pleasure. It's been great to speak with you. Looking to freshen up your wardrobe for the summer season? Having trouble finding a brand whose products are functionally built to move and sweat in, but designed with a casual aesthetic aimed at everyday life? Then Viore is the clothing brand you've been looking for. Viore merges technical clothing with a West Coast vibe that looks and fits great. Viore's motto is built to move in, styled for life. They have a new perspective on performance apparel. Viore has incorporated innovative fabrics that feature anti-odor finishes, moisture wicking, and quick dry finishes. My favorite being Sea Cell, which is a sustainably sourced fiber that uses a blend of algae and wood pulp to create the most comfortable shirts you've ever felt. They really are. They're incredible. They're also anti-odor and filled with vitamins and nutrients that are released when you sweat. To receive 25% off, yes, that's 25% off your order, head to vioriclothing.com. That's V-U-O-R-I clothing.com and use discount code W-G-Y-T. If at any point you're unsatisfied with your purchase, send it back. 
That's 25% off your entire order with a 100% satisfaction guaranteed. VioriClothing.com, discount code WGYT for 25% off your order. If you're like me and love to travel, then listen up. Are you looking to get outside your comfort zone in 2018? Are you tired of the monotony of your nine to five job with no adventure? Do you want to connect with new people on Epic Adventures? If so, then Globekick is what you're looking for. Globekick is redefining travel for the millennial generation. Globekick knows that memorable travel is built on the quality of the experience you have and the people you connect with along the way. That's why their members can choose from curated travel experiences throughout the year with like-minded people. Unlike other travel providers, Globekick members get to know each other through a private social network before choosing when and where they travel together. In 2018, they've teamed up with partners around the world to feature a Sahara Desert camping trip out of Morocco in May, a boating journey through the San Blas Islands in the Caribbean in August, and a volunteering trip to an elephant sanctuary outside of Cambodia in December. If you want to travel the world with your kind of people and not break the bank, then head to globekick.com and enter WGYT to receive 10% off your membership. That's globekick.com and enter code WGYT to receive 10% off your membership. What got you there with Shonda Laney? Uh, what got you there with Shonda Laney? What got you there with Shonda Laney? Uh, what got you there with got you, got you? Thanks for listening to another episode of What Got You There. If you enjoyed today's episode, please leave us a review on iTunes and also share with your friends. Thanks so much. Looking forward to talking with you next time. If you want to stay up to date on all things I'm working on behind the scenes and everything we've got going on at What Got You There, head over to whatgotyouthere.com. You'll also be able to see more on podcast guests and what they're doing. Thanks to Justin Great for providing us the intro and outro song. If you like his music and want to find out more about what he's working on, head over to justingreat.com.